Hi, and welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast, where we take an integrative approach combining psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance. And I'm Nico Yatanis, co-producer of this podcast. In today's episode, we will discuss separation anxiety and quarantine. How will we approach this, Colleen? Well, a few topics we will cover today, Nico, are the idea of separation anxiety and specifically analogous to our experience during our pandemic with social distancing and quarantine. Then we will discuss our anxiety, not just being away from loved ones and friends and family, but also that we've hunkered down into our immediate cohort. And believe it or not, some people start to actually miss them when they're gone. A few clients, including myself, feel the omission when a partner leaves just for groceries or a child leaves the house. Then we'll, of course, move into some effective coping techniques. And then lastly, just touch upon what's happening with our emotions as we slowly reopen into our new norm. We'll get into all of these topics in this episode, but I also want to open with a specific topic near and dear to some of us, considering our pets and their role in separation anxiety. That's a great way to open, Colleen. I know when I was in college, I missed my dog so much. I might have had separation anxiety from him, and I felt that he might have had the same feeling. My mom said that when I was gone, he slept in my bed, which he never did when I was home. It reminds me of that commercial where the dog waits for the owner by the door to come back home from military service. And then when he does, the dog suddenly jumps for joy and comes back alive. Well, Nico, that's a great uh, analogy. I remember that one. Um, And also, I was reading an article in the magazine Psychology Today, and it was entitled, What We Owe Dogs, written by psychologist Jessica Pierce whereby she wrote about dogs helping us weather the pandemic and how we may want to reconsider our relationship with them. What struck me is how she discussed, quote, when dogs have separation anxiety, we pathologize them for missing us, end quote. And she referenced a consensus amongst dog trainers and dog advocates that concluded that dogs are comfortable being alone for about four hours and then they start to experience loneliness, frustration, and anxiety, sometimes resulting in destructive behaviors. And of course, I'm drawing that parallel of us being separated from our loved ones when we feel our own frustrations and a diverse number of stressors from social distancing thus experiencing our own separation anxiety. Dr. Pierce related it back to the comfort that our dogs and pets bring us when we're stressed, soothing us and releasing oxytocin. And she writes, quote, dogs pull us out of our recursive spiraling thoughts, end quote, and how dogs have been, quote unquote, prescribed to people suffering from anxiety, depression, and stress as they require our love and care, and just being with them makes us calm and happy. It definitely does. Dogs can be so pure that they sort of make you forget about all of life's worries. 
I would also guess that like humans, certain dogs have different thresholds for anxiety or frustration. Yes, and as a matter of fact, I'll probably reference my dog Lucille, who is lying on bed next to me with my foot propped up as we record this. And, you know, it's an interesting thing when you do look at individual temperaments. So thank you for bringing that up. Actually, Dr. Pierce then goes on to discuss sort of the one-sidedness of our relationship with dogs, why their attention-seeking behaviors sometimes are met with that pathology and punishment, or sometimes even medication. But really, in the end, they just want our attention. And now the shoe is on the other paw, as she states it. And now that it's our human experience that we have this separation anxiety, because we're separated from friends, social circles, parents and children, and we are getting a taste of what millions of dogs experience with the profound stress of being alone when we don't want to be. And dogs rely on us to help their distress, and us humans rely on each other when we experience these types of feelings. Oh, and Nico, this article also referenced the amount of pets that were rescued during COVID-19, and we must not forget about them when we return to normal. So maybe that's another episode, how we can discuss not only our return to our new norm, but our pets return to their new norm. That's a great episode idea, so stay tuned for that in a future episode. Talking about how dogs deal with separation anxiety was a great precursor to how humans deal with separation anxiety. Yes, Nico, and we need to nurture ourselves and remember to spend time with family and balance and create lifestyles when we do return to normal, as we need to remember to not only care for our pets, but ourselves too. You mentioned this in a past YouTube video, but the importance of checking in on those who truly are alone, especially during quarantine. So now let's get into separation anxiety for humans. Well, the DSM-5 category states, and by the way, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and the 5 is because we're on the 5th edition. They state that a diagnosis that are assigned to individuals who have unusually strong fear of anxiety, uh, separating from people that they have a strong attachment to, and the diagnosis is given when the distress associated with the separation is unusual for the individual's developmental level or is prolonged and severe. So by and large, the cause of separation disorder is largely unknown, but there are certainly some risk factors. And we can also look at what folks are likely to develop these symptoms, especially after a person experiences a major stressor, a loss, or our current climate. I know the phrase separation anxiety gets thrown around left and right on social media when it might not truly be considered separation anxiety. For example, I've seen some people caption their photo having separation anxiety from my favorite coffee place. So that said, what are some of the actual symptoms of separation anxiety? That's a great question, Nico. Usually it comes around some idea of distress, but the stress is not 
you know, something we've experienced on a regular basis. It could also be the discussion of, or even the experience of being parted from an attachment figure. There's also excessive fears that harm will befall the attached person or circumstance. It's usually accompanied by persistent worry of an unexpected event that could lead to separation from the attachment figure. Excessive fear of being alone, nightmares about separation, and physical symptoms such as headaches and stomach aches. Separation anxiety may also lead to the impairment or the ability to complete daily tasks. We call them ADLs or activities of daily living, such as housework, chores, job tasks. And of course, there's the personal and social impairment and potential work problems. People with separation anxiety are more likely to have anxiety disorder or mood disorders as well. Separation anxiety frequently develops after, let's say, a distressing event, especially with loss or, let's say, a divorce. And of course, we can see in our current climate all of this and more. Yeah, quarantine can definitely feel like a distressing event, especially when we did not have the preparations at the beginning of it, so we were all faced with the uncertainty. We didn't have sufficient information on the virus, and we were unsure what the future looked like. Then quarantine put normal life on pause, separating us from our normal lives. That's right, and let's talk about that, Nico. So we have separation not only from our friends and family, but also from our jobs. For some of us, that's also loss. A loss of contact with our coworkers, who also could be our friends, but also our identity. Some folks are experiencing the same symptoms of anxiety, frustrations, and the unknown. I know a current topic amongst my friends is about the upcoming academic school year. My kids are split down the center. My son cannot wait to go back, and my daughter, quite frankly, would prefer to stay at home. And again, this echoes our current climate. We mentioned a few weeks ago about that staying at home and that that part of our pandemic actually left some people feeling safe and secure while others felt trapped and stifled. I pretty much think that's the climate of the world, if not certainly for the United States. And we also need to remember giving ourselves gentle, loving kindness, not only to our friends, but to our family and co-workers that might have these dichotomous views. In a few minutes, we can discuss some supportive tips and techniques that may help our listeners ease their anxieties. There was a really comical YouTube video that the comedian Trey Kennedy put out called Extroverts versus Introverts During Quarantine. And I highly recommend that everyone go watch it because it makes light of a darker situation. But it also echoes what you just said. Some people prefer to stay safe indoors while others feel trapped and would do just about anything to leave the confines of their homes. The YouTube video was also comical because it shows the dynamic between conflicting personalities while quarantined. I lean towards being introverted at times while my brother is 100% an extrovert. 
He's one of those people who needs to get out while I'm more or less fine inside occupying my time. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it, Nico, and I will definitely check out that YouTube video. Um, so, you know, while we're sort of self-disclosing here, let's look at anxiety and quarantining with a partner. So now most of us have never spent this much time ever with our either partners or family members. And again, not only am I experiencing this myself personally and with my children, but also hearing this in my practice. For example, somebody actually went to go run errands and she had not been away from her husband for more than an hour this whole time. And she said, I actually started to like wonder and maybe get a little nervous and, and started missing him. And it's the same with our furry friends, right? I mean, I know Lucille, I can just walk and get the mail and I came back and it's like I, I've been separated from her for two weeks. And that's the beauty of having our companions in terms of our furry friends. They just get used to that feeling of security, companionship, and well, our company. And then we have to consider the way we are you know, not only treating ourselves, but clinically, typically separation anxiety happens with children. So what do we do? Well, we look at preparing for these adventures and also using cognitive behavioral therapy that we've discussed in the past and positive self-talk to re-engage with life as we once knew it, even though it's still not 100% familiar. And basically that's building our resilience. For some folks, it's also about uh, potentially going back out there in the world. And, you know, what is the pace going to look at? The, you know, this pandemic is obviously something we have never seen before. So it's going to be very individualistic for everyone. And we need to embrace and support that. It is very individualistic and even regionally different. I had a Zoom call yesterday with a few of my friends throughout the country and it was interesting to hear their own recollection of events within their communities and homes and how each of their experiences differed. So how do we go about treating separation anxiety? Well, if you look at, you know, full-on therapeutic approaches, of course my field is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So we're looking at cognitive meaning our cognitions or the way in which we view the world some exposure therapy again with children are you know the most common forms of treatment for separation anxiety but we could also try that ourselves so for example we might have said this in a podcast a few weeks ago i've had clients just try to go for a walk down their street or go for a walk down the block before they actually re-engage in like a full-on trip somewhere. I have lots of folks that live in Manhattan and you know the inner workings of New York City and they've gone home to live with their parents, which could also be another episode, <laughs> Nico. Um, but they're afraid, you know, they, they are just comfortable now going to the supermarket. They can't imagine going to a supermarket in New York City. So again, you want to sort of plan for these adventures. You want to look at creating strong attachments to relationships because they create a sense of value and safety. It also increases happiness and reduces anxiety. And, you know, people also develop secure attachments through psychotherapy because therapeutic relationships can provide 
attachment experiences that allow for an integration of the brain to actually look to higher and healthier functioning. In addition, developing self-compassion, which means being kinder and gentler to yourself, and that is also associated with lower levels of anxiety, and of course, as a form of mindfulness. Separation anxiety also leaves us feeling withdrawn, sad, and sometimes we're unable to focus, especially when we're apart from our attachments. We have fears of events that could result in loss of our attachments. Specifically, I will say for me, as I was doing some of my own research for this podcast, we came across something to do with adults with separation anxiety with their children leaving their home. And I sort of did a little self-diagnosis, Nico, because I think I'm having separation anxiety as my kids are starting to return to some norm with our phased approach here in Massachusetts. So my daughter went on a social distance walk with some friends, my son's playing basketball, and I'm finding myself going on the Life360 app and I'm tracking them as they go, which now our listeners know. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's excess worry and fear. And then that leads to sleep disturbances, which can be quite debilitating, making it difficult to function either at school or work. But psychotherapy is often available to deal with these difficult emotions that we struggle with. Both children and adults can learn to tolerate separation and develop healthier, happier lives within themselves and their loved ones. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to what you said, Colleen. I do, I track people in the family when they leave the house on Find My Friends, like whether they're just going to the grocery store, I'm just kind of like, when will they be back? And as you always say, Colleen, Psychology Today is a great resource for finding providers in your area. That's right. And you can type in whether you want a specific type of therapist within your zip code and even toggle down to very concrete ideas of what you'd like to address. So thank you for remembering Psychology Today Online. So let's go to coping. And of course, clinically discussing what the separation anxiety actually is and then these coping techniques that can help. Let's touch up on some of the techniques now. One would be reassurance, okay? This goes both ways. And again, I'm sort of giving an objectification, but I know when my son leaves to go play basketball, as he just did, because it came across my phone that he left the house, you know, he reassures me. Mom, I know how to take off my mask, you know, safely with my pinky. I will social distance. I brought my own water bottle. You know, I know what to do. That gives me reassurance. You know, that's the same for, let's say, when a loved one leaves the house. Or, for example, I have a client that works for a very high-powered firm in New York City. And when, you know, they're going back, um, potentially either in the fall or in 2021, can't believe I just said that. They're, you know, giving people the options to say, well, if you're comfortable going back to work, that's great. But anyone entering the building will be giving personal protection equipment and temperatures will be taken upon entering the building. So again, setting these reassurances. 
also, I mean, and this is the biggest one, Nico, limit media and, you know, really explain what is happening in age appropriate ways if it's your children. Today, I spoke with maybe five different people that were talking about because the COVID-19 climate is a little bit different, specifically here in Massachusetts and comparing it to different states. Some people are getting a bigger sense of safety because we're just not hearing about it as much, but we're not hearing about it maybe as much or the hospital's not being inundated because the social distancing and mask wearing is working, right? But it also gives a false sense of security in some ways. So again, it's about looking at what is happening. And then I need to mention the evidence that is growing between the mind-body connection for well-being and physical health, which is why we combine psychology, biology, and neurology. It's real. So looking at restorative sleep, exercise and meditation and mindfulness. We also might want to try and slow down and be present, not lamenting on the past or forecasting into the future. Then you might also want to find an activity that allows you to settle your mind, your emotions and your desires so that you actually become grounded in the present. I know last week we talked about HelloCore, the handheld device that has biofeedback in an app. We also looked at CalmiGo. I know I use the device Unite, which is guided meditation and biofeedback also with an app, but you can really use anything. You can stare at a candle, you can do a puzzle, as we've said, drink a cup of tea, even have a meal mindfully. Then there's also the idea of starting to have fun again and finding joy, right? I know a lot of people followed the comments this week and they said, jeepers, I, I haven't had anything to look forward to in so long. And again, that just goes out to our present moment, enjoying nature and the world around us. Yes, we can train our brain to be better and withstand harder times. When we spend time thinking about stressful events or times, we just become stressed. So we need to build this muscle of resilience and support. Those are great resources, Colleen. I had no idea about the comments. And I'll add to that list of resources. You can tune into the YouTube channel at Restore Body Balance to watch the YouTube video, Stress Management Techniques, Building Resilience with Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It's on the Restore Body Balance YouTube channel. So what are some of the risk factors that are associated with developing separation anxiety? Another great question, Nico. Risk factors can include things like life stressors or loss that results in separation, such as illness, death of a loved one, loss of a beloved pet, divorce of parents, moving or going away to school, not to mention certain temperaments, which are more prone to anxiety disorders than others. A family history, including blood relatives who have problems with anxiety or anxiety disorders, and indicating that sometimes those traits could be inherited in some studies. Then there's also environmental issues, such as experiencing a type of disaster that involves separation, aka our current climate. And we have to look at our lifestyles and some home remedies that right now we're all coming up with really clever ideas, right? And, you know, 
what have people traditionally done in their home environments in terms of lifestyles to mitigate or what might augment separation anxiety. Then you have to also look at the benefits of a professional treatment. I probably can't say that enough times. And you can take steps to help ease separation anxieties, either in children or adults. Again, talk to a mental health professional. Learn about the disorder like we're doing today, because if you understand it, you can help treat it. And really, speaking of treat, this is really a treatment plan, right? Back in the day when I worked at McLean Hospital, that was the first thing you did when you met with somebody is you come up with a solid treatment plan and you make sure you stick to it. If you're in therapy, keep your therapy appointments because consistency makes a big difference. Also, take action. Let's look at, you know, what triggers your anxiety, i.e. me and my son just leaving the house right now. <laughs> I know he's doing a great job, but again, because we've all been inside for months now, it takes a lot to have people which just seem like a normal activity, I'm going to go play basketball, turns into an anxiety-provoking event. We also have to look at practicing strategies um, that maybe you could develop with a mental health professional so that you're ready to deal with your anxious feelings during these separations or potentially going back to what our new norm will be. And coping with the separation anxiety disorder can just be frustrating in general and sometimes cause conflict with other family members or just cause a great deal of stress and worry in your own lives. And so, you know, I think it's important for families here, especially, uh, you know, with our listeners, is to look at what might be masking separation anxiety in a child or in a family member or in a partner or roommate. You know, what signs and symptoms are they developing that might seem a little bit off or out of norm? And, you know, it's never anybody's job to play counselor, but it's important just to look at the signs and symptoms. And we also want to look at demonstrating calm support. So you want to encourage your child or loved one maybe to try new experiences and experience the separation and then eventually try to develop independence with your support. Those are all great points, Colleen. They are, Nico. And, you know, there are wonderful resources online. You know, not only our YouTube channel, but like we said, getting help with psychology today. Um, and even, you know, sites like the Mayo Clinic, www.mayoclinic.org. There are wonderful online resources for people to pick up some of these, you know, extra techniques and supportive ways of behaving and acting around family members and friends to both look at those of us that are feeling separation anxiety or those of us that are experiencing it with a family member or friend. The other cool thing that I want to bring up is, <laughs> I know we always go back to neuroscience and I completely geek out, but I am going to go back to the brain and the idea of building resilience. So I'm going to borrow some information from an article that was in a special edition of Time Magazine. And it was titled, Bouncing Back. And the edition of the Time Magazine was called The Science of Happiness, by the way, just for our listeners to hear. And Bouncing Back was written by writer Mandy Oaklander. And 
in the article, she references by interviewing two different people that resilience is really a skill set. And that's what I learned both at a training at my alma mater, Boston College, um, where I became certified as a behavioral health disaster responder. I'm not sure if you know that, Nico, but I am. <laughs> um, we did a, it was called a research certification. So not only did we do research, but we were also certified in the end. Uh, this was post 9-11. And we actually looked at can you build resilience? And we studied first responders and also war-torn countries who are able to just pick up and rebuild and who do not. And it was interesting because now with the fMRI machines, we actually can, like I say in my book, Prescription for Change, we have a roadmap to the brain, so we might as well use it. So in the article, she refers to resilience like uh, rubber bouncing back after it's squeezed. And I just like to do this for our listeners. Just picture squeezing something and having it go back to its original shape, bouncing back. That's resilience. And again, we can actually look inside the brain and measure why some people bounce back while others just get blindsided. And as I say, probably every time we can train the brain. That's the idea of neuroplasticity. But here we can train the brain to become more resilient. So the two people that Mandy Oaklander interviewed in this article uh, were Stephen Southwick, who is a professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, and Dennis Charney, who is the dean of the Econ School of Medicine, both studying resilience. And they say it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of training. So, Nico, do you remember my smoke detector analogy? I do. And can you provide a refresher for those of us listening that might not know it? Sure. So, your smoke detector in your home is designed to basically do one job, or essentially two jobs. Detect heat and detect smoke. But it doesn't know if you've burned the toast or, heaven forbid, your house is on fire. It just knows those two settings, off and on. So our amygdala in our brain does the same thing. It has two settings, fight or flight, rest and restore. Is it in the sympathetic fight or flight or the parasympathetic rest and restore? And again, with fight or flight, we've talked about that blood rushing to our fist to fight or our feet to flee. So even thinking stressful thoughts actually sets off the amygdala. And as I've said to my clients, it's like that smoke detector because we need to tell the amygdala everything's calm. The fire department came, they checked the perimeter, they checked the inside of the house, there is no fire, it was a false alarm, so go back in the building. And I kid around visually with my clients and I'll say, all right, cortisol back in the building, norepinephrine back in the building, epinephrine, I see you over there, you back in the building. So all of those, you know, wonderful stress hormones and neurotransmitters that are putting you in fight or flight, which sometimes saves your life or jumps out of the way of a, a moving vehicle, but, or, or running from a, you know, like a, a predator, as they say back in the day, um, 
that puts us in fight or flight, but we need to remember to tell it to calm down. And so building resilience allows us to become that rubber that bounces back. So let's go back to our wonderful dog analogy, since we're talking about dogs today or animals in general. So Nico, you have a dog. Mm -hmm. So what happens if your dog senses something different or hears something different, do you notice anything physical that happens to your dog? Oh, definitely. Especially with all those fireworks going around recently, my dog has, he doesn't leave my side and usually he kind of likes his own space. He'll cuddle up next to people for a little bit, but usually not for prolonged periods. And with all of those fireworks and thunder recently, he's been glued to my side. Perfect analogy. Now let's switch to fight or flight, right? In a different kind of way of an animal that if you've ever seen, like maybe the hair go up on a cat or um, like I know for my dog, Lucille, who's a Labrador, she's got these wonderful big floppy ears. So her ears will perk up. Any of you that follow my Instagram, you know my daughter Addison rides horses. So a very unique thing with horses is you never want to be near them when their ears are pinned back because they're ready to go into fight or flight, so get out of their way. If their ears are up, they're happy and listening. But if their ears are pinned back, they're in fight or flight. So again, the same thing is happening to us, right? So like we can see what happens. You know, I'd love to say that my my dog was a guard dog, Nico, but like yours, uh, she just hides under the bed. <laughs> so um, now, why am I telling us this? Well, because this is what we've discovered with neuroscience and the roadmap to the brain is that when we meditate, we seem to be able to have good resilience as a result, which means you seem to have the capacity, I quote, to appropriately regulate the subcortical fear circuits under the conditions of stress, and that's by charning. So the more you meditate, I know I focus on this every week, and I know my clients are sick of listening to me say this, but the more you meditate, the quicker you can bounce back from a stressful event. And it doesn't take a predator to trigger that stress response. Some research even shows that feelings of social pain, rejection, and loneliness also work on the same neural pathways as fear. Again, like our current times of social distance and separation anxiety. So we need to look at this super highway and think about what we've said in the past. You are just reinforcing and making it stronger, stronger and stronger. Every time you think you go down the rabbit's hole, you perseverate, you ruminate, you keep going over the same thing and the fear-based response, you're just making that habit stronger and that neural pathway stronger with fearful thinking and staying in the stress-based response. So we can actually build and grow different circuits to different pathways, building our resiliency. Then we have the ability to tell that smoke detector or our amygdala to calm down. And this is probably the, the bulk of my practice, right, Nico, is that as a cognitive behavioral therapist, which is why I wrote my book, Prescription for Change, 
using your lifestyle as medicine is that I kid you not listeners, I promise you, a light bulb did go off in my head, like for real. When I was at Mass General Hospital learning uh, SMART, stress management and resiliency training uh, with of course, um, you know, the, the, the help of the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard University. When we are in the stress-based response, we are not amenable to change. So all of that smoke detector stuff that I used to tell my clients, look at when you're having a fearful thought, when you're having, you know, feelings and, and thinking and feeling, feeling and thinking, you just need to stop and do our, you know, ABCD, like we've talked about, Nico, a bunch of times, activating events and, you know, um, looking at the behavior and then looking at the consequences and then, of course, disputing the belief. That was the big thing when I was at my training at, and, um, you know, po- you know, post, uh, you know, program at BC is just dispute the belief, dispute the belief, dispute the belief. But we are not amenable to disputing the belief in fight or flight. So even though, dear Dr. Albert Ellis, who was the pioneer of cognitive behavioral therapy, was right, it does work, just not in fight or flight. So where Charney and Southwick come in here is that this is all they do is study how to build resilience. So I'm going to probably just end the, our, our podcast here with some things to really help us build resilience. And I would love for us uh, to be able to have a podcast just dedicated to building resilience, but just as um, a bit of a platform. Um, this again comes from the article um, in Time Magazine. So Charney and Southwick say, you want to, number one, develop a core set of beliefs that no one can shake, i.e. going back to identity in my book. Two, try to find meaning in whatever stressful or traumatic event that has happened. Again, that's also from my SMART training. So I know, Nico, you fell in the tub, we told our listeners a few years ago, in your shower, and you got hurt. Oddly, at the same time, I broke my foot. (laughs) Um, And I do have bad days, but I also have good days, and I have to remember to find some meaning. Well, believe it or not, Nico, my life used to be get up at 5.30, bring my son to swim, bring him to school, afterwards come back empty the dishwasher work out myself go to work go to the market do you know prep a meal go back to the office and come home and eat dinner i'm not doing any of that right now any of it and i'm exhausted (laughs) and i was just thinking to myself I've really slowed down my pace. I mean, I might have a little anxiety about going back to the norm because I'm gonna have to build my resilience to do it again. But I'm, what we said in the SMART program is milk it for meaning, milk it for meaning. So right now I'm truly learning cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation. I'm truly dedicated to my mindfulness and my meditation routine. You know, that's milking it for what it's worth. We also want to take cues from someone who is resilient. So Nico, you know, you got to look at people in your life. Like what are there people in your life that you see as resilient or do you find yourself being resilient? Yeah, I think there are people in my life that are resilient and I think I am in some ways resilient depending on the situation. 
Yeah, so that's a good piece, right? So like if we're not feeling terribly confident or we're feeling a little, you know, anxious, we might want to have our rock or at least somebody that we can lean on. The other thing that Charney and Southwick say is don't run from things that scare you, face them. And I think that that's a big piece here that we are trying to go through step by step in the podcast is that, you know, in time, not all together, like slowly getting used to either like we had to stay at home or slowly get used to getting back out into the world. Also, they mentioned to be quick to reach out to support when things go wrong or haywire. Like for example, to that rock person that is your, you know, piece of resilience or maybe reaching out to a professional like myself. We also want to learn new things as often as you can. I love when I read this because it is true, right? We want to keep the brain occupied. We want to be learning new things in a really healthy, positive way. Okay, I will say it. I broke down and made bread. I didn't think I'd ever do it. <laughs> it seemed like such a cliche thing that everybody was doing, but I do have a wonderful recipe. Anybody can reach out to me. I think she's called the brown-eyed baker, but it's a need-free bread. And I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it, but you actually don't need to need this bread. So anyway, we can talk about that another time. Um, but again, learning a new skill and also, of course, finding some sort of exercise regime that you can stick to. So I was a runner and I loved my Peloton bike. With my broken foot, I wasn't able to do it. So recently I purchased a bench press, not because I'm going to be lifting weights, but in a way of I know I can't put pressure on my foot and sitting in a chair was difficult for me doing bicep curls and different things. So I have a bench that I can actually lay down on or be supportive for my foot. So that adaptation um, helped me so that I could find a new exercise uh, regimen that I could stick to. Nico, what did you do during your period when you fell? Oh, when I fell, the first day I was completely bedridden, so I ended up watching a full day of NCIS LA. And I usually don't watch TV during the day, but allowing myself to do that was kind of almost like a stress relief activity. As time progressed and I was able to move a little bit, I did occupy my time by learning new things, and I was learning Logic Pro, which is an Apple software just for fun. It gave me the time to do so. That's great. And you know, just to, to summarize here, the last two points is what we've said all the time. Don't beat yourself up. Don't dwell on the past. Gentle loving kindness. And also recognize what makes you uniquely strong and own it. Just like you said, Nico, it's a very individualistic path. Thank you, Colleen. You've taught us so much today about separation anxiety, including what separation anxiety is and specifically our experiences during the pandemic of social distancing and quarantine. Then we discuss separation anxiety with those we are quarantined with, including our pets, and how everyone has individual reactions. You showed us some effective coping techniques and resources, such as building resilience. So thank you all for listening to this episode of the Restore Body Balance podcast. To learn more about the programs and read the book on change, you can visit us on the web at www.restorebodybalance.com. 
and be sure to tune in to the Restore Body Balance YouTube channel for more resources on psychology, biology, and neurology.